The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, I lived in New York City and Manhattan all my life, okay? So, you know, my views are a little bit different than if I lived in Iowa, perhaps. I am pro-choice in every respect and as far as it goes. I am pro-life. Everybody knows I'm pro-life. But you still, I just believe in choice. There has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah. I've been told by some people that was a older line answer. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who refers to Alicia Mikado as my worst Miss Universe, Donald Trump. Does he own all of the Miss Universes or just her? I'm Jacob Weisberg. So on my last show, I riffed about Trump's outrage of the day, which was his adding more insult to the injuries he inflicted on the former Miss Universe, Alicia Mikado. And now he's going after her like she's the victim in a rape trial, and he's the accused, attacking her reputation. And today, I was thinking about talking about Trump's new outrage, a story that's in Newsweek about how he appears to have broken the Cuban embargo to explore opening hotels there, while, of course, supporting the Cuban embargo. American casinos in Cuba, now there's an idea. But then it occurred to me, aren't we just playing into his hands? There's a new outrage every seven hours with Donald Trump, and it tends to push yesterday's outrage off the front page, or whatever our digital version of the front page is, I guess most emojis on Facebook. There's no answer to this conundrum. We in the press crave a new scoop, a new scandal. But that has the inevitable effect of muting the outrage about yesterday's scandal. I could say a lot of things about Trump's hypocrisy on Cuba. I mean, boy, does he have some skeletons in that closet. But I just don't think it would be appropriate to talk about the sleazy consultants he hired or their soliciting phony support from a Catholic charity. I could talk about all of that here, but I'm just not going to go there. It wouldn't be nice. My guest today is Timothy Garton-Ash. He's a British historian, author, and a professor of European studies at the University of Oxford. His latest book is Free Speech, Ten Principles for a Connected World. I'll be back with that interview right after we do the tweets. Russia has more warheads than ever. North Korea is testing nukes. And Iran got a sweetheart deal for keeping theirs. Thanks, Hillary Clinton. I really enjoyed the debate last night. Crooked Hillary says she's going to do so many things. Why hasn't she done them in her last 30 years? Hillary Clinton has been part of the rigged D.C. system for 30 years. Why would we take policy advice from her? Crooked Hillary's bad judgment forced her to announce that she would go to Charlotte on Saturday to grandstand. Dem politicians said, no way. Dumb. Hillary Clinton just lost. Every Republican she ever had, including Never Trump's, all farmers, and small business by saying she'll tax estates at 65%. Romney campaign used me in six primary states and won every one. They should have used me in Florida and Ohio, and he would be president. 
My guest in the studio today is Timothy Garten-Ash. He is the Isaiah Berlin Fellow at St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford. He's a regular columnist for The Guardian, a regular writer for the New York Review of Books, and the author of several books himself, including most recently, Free Speech, Ten Principles for a Connected World. Tim, thanks for joining me on the show today. Great to be here. So I wanted to ask you first a little bit about Trump in a global context. You were very involved in the fight around Brexit. And a lot of my British friends point to what happened with Brexit as a way that elites can be so out of touch, they don't realize what's happening. And people point to the Brexit example, and they give it as a reason to worry about Trump winning. How should we think about Brexit in relation to Trump? So I came out to Stanford a few days after the Brexit vote. And the reason I'm still so worried that Trump might win is precisely the Brexit experience. All the elites, most of informed opinion, the polls, the evidence, the arguments suggested Britain shouldn't leave the EU and it wasn't going to happen. And it did happen. And there were just an awful lot of unhappy people out there, particularly in the post-industrial towns of northern England, typically sort of blue-collar, white, working-class people who were just very unhappy about everything, particularly immigration. And it was a huge protest vote. And it feels to me as if a lot of Trump's, at least Trump's core support, is very like the Brexit poor support. And I think one has to acknowledge that an awful lot of people do feel left behind and left out by globalization and its consequences, economically, socially, in terms of inequality, but also culturally. So, on, well, first of all, how did the analysts get Brexit wrong? Everyone knew it was going to be very close, but the, the anti-Brexiteers, the Bermainers, seem very confident on the eve of the vote, much as I think a lot of Hillary supporters actually seem fairly confident. They think at some level, I sort of think at some level, Trump can't win, but even though we think he can probably come close. I wonder if the verb think is the right verb, mm. because intellectually, we knew that it could go for Brexit, just as intellectually you know that it could go for Trump. I think feel is more the word. What it was the next morning, I've never forgotten, was a massive psychological shock because one just couldn't quite believe that Britain, this sensible, pragmatic country, freedom-loving country, could could make this crazy vote. And and so that, that, that I think, is, is, is what it is psychologically. But, you know, another thing is, another similarity is – the shape of the rhetoric, populism across Europe, and there's a lot of it about in the United States and elsewhere, has a similar sort of rhetorical form in which, be it Donald Trump or Nigel Farage or President Erdogan in Turkey, says, the people must speak, and I am the voice of the people, and I am the instrument, instrument of the people. And that trumps every other form of authority, any constitutional court, Supreme Court, Parliament, you name it. I mean, remember, this is a weird phenomenon because this was a referendum in the name of parliamentary sovereignty. Well, if parliament is sovereign, then it's parliament that should vote. So there's a contradiction in terms. Um, but then you say the people, but actually you only mean a part of the people. So the, the the morning after, Nigel Farage, the leader of the UK Independence Party, said this is a victory for the ordinary people, the real people, the decent people. And that's the classic 
populist rhetoric. We're the people and you're not. You're you're the elites, which somehow deprives you of, of the same level of personhood that they have. Exactly. So it's against the elites. It's against the ele- experts, you know, the bicoastal cosmopolitan metrosexual elites. I mean, that that's very much that feel. And there's a wonderful quotation from Trump, which captures this perfectly, where he says, I'm quoting from memory, what we want is the unification of the people. Then there are the other people, but they don't count. And, it, you know, that's a perfect populist statement. Mm. And you, you use this term populism. And populism can be on the left. It can be on the right. Uh, it's sometimes the definition of it is sometimes a little vague. It can mean uh, it's a way of calling politics that you disagree with irrational as opposed to simply calling Trump a demagogue or an opportunist. What makes him a populist by your definition? You're spot on. So for years, I refused to use the word because, you know, it was so obvious. Um, We have Occupy Wall Street or the Indignados, and that's noble popular protest in the tradition of Martin Luther King and Gandhi. They protest, you're populist, we're noble protester. You're nationalist, I'm patriotic, and so it goes on. But I think now... There is enough that these different movements have in common, and it is, number one, speaking to the left behind, the people whose economic and social discontents focus particularly on immigration, the other, the other people, and then, as I say, this framing of it by the populist leaders, speaking directly for the people, but it's only part of the people. Tim, you write in your book, and we're both very concerned about the global trend towards censorship, towards uh, attacks on independent media, and the decline of a robust free press in so many countries. Do you think Trump fits into that phenomenon? He said some things that are a little worrying about the use of libel laws. Uh, He seems to have a, a, a kind of authoritarian reaction to media criticism. Is that another place, too, where the United States is maybe looking like it's at risk of following a trend we see elsewhere in the world? So I started working on this book 10 years ago, and at that time, it looked as if there was still some sort of a forward march of freedom. There was the Arab Spring. I could speak about it just off Tahrir Square. I spoke about it freely in Turkey. Even in China, I could actually demonstrate our website in a bookshop, even though the website was banned. So we had to go through a VPN. I mean, that was pretty amazing. Uh, wherever you went, even in Russia, it looked as if things were, things were opening up. Five years later, I couldn't talk about it in Egypt, just about in Turkey, tough in Russia, almost impossible in China. Wherever you look, the, 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 what I would call actually simply the counter-revolution, because it is actually a, a, a reaction against the, the global spread of liberalism. Now, where does the United States fit? So the subtitle of the book is A Connected World. And a connected world, because of the internet and mass migration, means everybody is becoming neighbors with everyone else. And that means everyone can see what everyone else is doing, particularly in the United States. The United States is is, is one big fishbowl for the rest of the world, right? So where Trump fits, I think, is not as it were, the danger of authoritarian suppression of the media in the United States, because I I, I don't think that's credible. But in giving a bad example, I mean, the United States has to be there as the great shining example of a free press. And 
if it's if it's put in question, and also the crudeness of the language, the crudeness of the attacks on women, on Mexican, on others, uh, the sort of debasing and coarsening of political language, everybody sees that, and it's a bad example. And how do we set a good example? Post-Iraq uh, war, there's certainly a retreat from the idea that the United States plays much of a role in spreading democracy around the world. Unfortunately, that idea was to some extent discredited by what happened with the Iraq war. How do we preserve an idea that the United States can be an example when it comes to free expression, the First Amendment, and also, very importantly, having independent media? Because if you have a free press and you don't have any independent media, it only gets you partway where you need to be. That's spot on. So, uh, you know, I spent a lot of my life studying, first living and then studying the Cold War. There's no question that the most important thing we did in the Cold War was simply to keep our own societies strong, prosperous, open, attractive. And that's still true. So, so as it were, a great foreign policy for promoting free speech begins at home. So, for example, the FCC ruling on net neutrality is very important, not just for the United States, but for the rest of the world, because it's a great example. Uh, how the press, for example, I've, I've felt over the last uh, 10, 15 years since 9-11 that the, the American press, papers like the New York Times, have been a bit too deferential to national security concerns. As you know, national security, quote unquote, is the trump card. It's the, you know, the ace of spades that, that all governments, particularly authoritarian governments play to, to shut people up, to censor. So there too, the example that the United States gives of not ceding too much to the demands of national security is very important. Beyond that, and this is a large part of the argument of the book, I think we, we and particularly Americans, have to talk to the rest of the world in a slightly different way. So I'm a huge admirer of the First Amendment tradition. But there is a slight tendency to say, hey, world, we've worked it all out. Yeah, we are, so to speak, the final chapter of the Enlightenment. We've got the whole package. Um, there's a book by Lee Bollinger, the president of Columbia University, which almost says that. Just go to Ikea, get the First Amendment package. <laughs> and um, if you can understand the instructions, which most of us can't, you can put it all together. When I go around the world, talking about these things to India, to China, to Brazil, to South Africa, there's always an initial resistance because here's this Westerner coming to us post-colonial societies. Isn't this just liberal imperialism? If you shift it slightly and start with their own traditions of free speech and then come to how you institutionalize those and make them stronger, it has an amazing, an amazing, a transformative impact. Gandhi once wonderfully said, we need to find the way of opening ears. And I think the United States may need to find better ways to open ears. An irony of the uh, connected world, or paradox at least, is that people can have much more access to information, but also be much more isolated in the kind of information they receive. The country no longer has a few agreed upon sources of accurate information, the New York Times and CBS News. People go off into their own bubbles, and with the help of the internet, they can construct an alternate reality. How do we fight that, and what is that? How does that change the landscape around around expression in politics? So, you know, we talk about the alt right 
And as you say, I think there's now something like alt-reality de developing. The, the, the Trump voter watches Fox News, listens to Rush Limbaugh, other talk radio, gets news from Breitbart, and very importantly, from your Facebook friends. And most of them have views similar to yours, and it reinforces your prejudices. But the same is true on the other side, the quote-unquote liberal side, right? MSNBC, NPR, The New York Times, uh, and your Facebook friends. That fundamentally erodes the basic idea of democracy and of free speech for democracy, which is, like the citizens of ancient Athens, we meet in the public square, all of us, we hear all the different points of view, all the arguments, all the evidence for the Iraq war, against the Iraq war, um, for this policy, for that policy, and then we make up our minds. And I'm afraid that is, it's, we started observing it on the internet, but I'm afraid it's now true of the whole media landscape. And so um, a great example of this is a polling evidence which shows that whereas in the past we could say, quote unquote, it's the economy, stupid. If the economy was doing well, the incumbent would be elected. Now there's good evidence that Republicans and Democrats are actually seeing different economies. Yes. And that's very worrying indeed. And, and that's the question I pose constantly. Now, fortunately, we in Britain still have the BBC. So we have a public service broadcaster which preserves the public square. But what do you do in, in the United States? Well, in a way, it's a question for you. Because, you know, the, as, as uh, Pat Moynihan fam famously said, everyone has the right to their opinion, but not to their own facts. But increasingly, we seem to be living in an environment where people have alternative facts, not just strongly differing opinions. So I had the wonderful experience of trying to defend my last book, which is a collection of essays called Facts Are Subversive, which I wouldn't mind having on my tombstone as a motto, <laughs> Facts Are Subversive, um, to Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report. And he said, what do you mean facts are subversive? I don't want to be subversive. Don't bother me with the facts. I want to feel good. I want to feel comfortable. And I like to say that I think the reality with Trump has almost overtaken the Colbert satire. I mean, if you look at the way the whole Bertha controversy uh, has gone, there was a, an amazing comment after Obama had released his birth certificate when Trump said in an interview, a lot of people feel that it's not a proper certificate, right? It's more important what you feel than what any evidence is. Um, against that, I would have to say, I think one really positive development is the explosion of fact-checking. Mm. And the fact-checkers have become really a recognized part of the fourth estate. And, that, and that's great. But another great Colbert line, facts have a liberal bias. And people on the right, really many of them, seem to believe that. And they they, they dis discount the whole enterprise of fact-checking as some sort of expression of, of opinion as opposed to, to trying to be neutral. Yes. In the... Brexit referendum, there was an amazing website which was trying to fact-check all the, you know, outrageous whoppers that were being told by the Brexiteers. And it was called In Facts, play on words, in fact, but also the facts for staying in the EU. The trouble with that is then we had the In Facts and the Out Facts. And I think that is indeed the next, as it were, iteration or dialectical development of this, that both sides then have their own facts. I wrote down this. Tr Trump had a tweet this morning that was exactly on this point. He said, uh, and these are not the exact words, but he said, if you see someone in the press 
citing sources in my campaign. Do not believe them. There are no sources. They are just made up lies. So he's saying prophylactically, if the New York Times says a source close to Trump says there, there's infighting in his campaign, don't believe it. No one on my campaign could ever be a source for the New York Times. Assume that what you read in the news is not true. Yes. A famous line in British German journalism is what you need to ask is why is this lying bastard lying to me? <laughs> um, and, 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 but populists play off that because people do think that the elites in the political class are always spinning them a line, are in fact lying all the time. And so he's saying, yeah, we're all liars. So, you know, don't, don't believe any of it. And I think that that is really difficult. And one, one reason, it's partly the echo chamber effect. It's partly the sort of post-fact society. But it's also, you know, historians of propaganda know that what makes a lie dangerous is not when it's told once. It's when it's repeated a thousand times, 10,000 times, a 100,000 times. And this 24-7 hectic media, social media world, this, this sort of street market of the media has this effect of relentless repetition so that in the end, narrative triumphs over fact. I started this show, Tim, because I was a little frustrated with the way a lot of the media was covering Trump. I felt they weren't really telling it the way it was. And often that simply meant calling out Trump on deception, lie, if you will, uh, but a series of outrages. And there was this false balance that just inevitably crept in because of the media's structure, where you're usually comparing part candidates from opposing parties who both have some reasonable validity uh, and are acceptable choices. And it's funny what's happened, particularly in the past several weeks. There's been a kind of shift, and you could say it's been led by the New York Times, but towards telling it like it is more directly about Trump, calling him out using the ter terms like lie and liar, and essentially not standing for his attempt to construct an alternate reality. What's your view of it? I think that is right, and it's certainly what I would do. My great hero is George Orwell. You call a spade a spade, a lie a lie. You tell it as it is. That's the highest commandment for a political writer. But of course, as that happens, so the prejudices of, quote unquote, the self-identified people become reinforced. Yeah, hey, it's right, these liberal mass media. Do you remember Trump said in the debate, um, the best person in Hillary Clinton's campaign, the best person is mainstream media. So there is a danger there. Uh, if there's no you know, nothing like the BBC in the middle, which all sides, at least reasonable people, all sides would accept. But, but listen, there, there is a huge problem here. The, the, the British novelist Adam Mars Jones many years ago wrote a wonderful short story about the Queen of England uh, getting rabies. A, a, a bird had bitten one of her corgis, and then <laughs> she got it from the corgi. And so the Queen is slowly going mad. She's going bonkers. And of course, the joke is about how everyone still carries on trying to pretend this is normal, as she says these crazier and crazier things. And that's sort of slightly 
my feeling of where one is with Trump. I mean, you look at those Republicans who are still supporting him, or Mike Pence, trying to pretend that the rabid queen, you know, is still carrying on normally. And obviously, one shouldn't do that. At some point, you have to say the queen has got rabies. And it's interesting on the on the Republican side, there have been a number of Republicans who've, who've come out very strongly and bravely against Trump. But they tend to be those who are not looking forward to running for election at any time in the future. They're the commentators, the pundits, the retired politicians, not the people who are going to run for the House or Senate again, which is a little disappointing. It's very hard to find conservative opposition to Trump that runs against personal and political self-interest. Yeah, although there have been quite a lot of Republicans, former national security advisors and so on, who've come out and critically, haven't they? I mean, I mean, in a sense, the normal thing is for people to put career before country. So, so you, can, you can look at it both ways. But it is an incredibly worrying moment, I have to say. There's no, there's no, no doubt about it. And in such a moment, I think there is a, an interesting question, what should you do about it? Because after all, if he does win, no one can pretend on the 9th of November that this was not a legitimate democratic election, right, by all the received criteria. So in that sense, it's rather different from from, from, from dilemmas of resistance right. in, 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 in other places. Although we've been warned clearly that if he loses, he will make the case that it was not a legitimate democratic election. The alternatives to him seem to be winning and being cheated which is going to create an interesting moment if he loses after the election where he casts doubt on the the legitimacy of the process. Sure, but I mean, then we know exactly what to do. So in that sense, it's <laughs> quite easy. But, 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 but um, there is a danger, which in a sense is a danger also in this competition. Obviously, my book is called Free Speech, so we've been talking about free speech in the media. But something has gone very wrong with a certain version of the liberal project in which you and I and many others believed. A lot of these people have genuine grievances. Someone said the Rust Belt Brexiteers. You know, there's real suffering out there. There's real unhappiness. And and I think, you know, if we're, if we're one level, it's just a matter of what we've been talking about, but it's also a matter of trying to see how we address the fundamental, you know, economic and social and cultural causes. I've been speaking with Timothy Garton-Ash. His new book is Free Speech, 10 Principles for a Connected World. Tim, thanks for joining me today. Real pleasure. Available in all good Amazons. <laughs> That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Thanks, as always, to John Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. And special thanks today to Alana Milner for the assist. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I'm very, very upset with some, some of my advisors who've been saying I lost the debate. Frankly, I think these people are spies. They've been sent over by the Clinton campaign. They look like Republicans, but and the women are very attractive. I have to say, very attractive women.